Welcome to the How Soccer Explains Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership principles through the lens of the beautiful game. Welcome back to How Soccer Explains Leadership. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation and engaging it and taking it and using it in awesome ways, no doubt, wherever you are. I am Phil Dark, your host, and with me is my co-host, my brother in arms, Paul Jobson. Paul, how you doing, man? Still doing great. Had another uh, full weekend this weekend. I had the opportunity to, to go back and work with Solar Soccer Club up in Dallas. They put together a, an ID event for, for their club and great event, great talent, of course, in that club. And uh, of course, attracts uh, coaches from all over the country, you know, all the way up to Cal, you know, Cal and UCLA were there and local college also, college is also UTD, you know, your TCUs. So, but a fun event, got to connect with a lot of great coaches on the club and college side. So it's always fun doing that and just helping families with that through that process that I'm doing now with SRUSA to, to help make those connections to the right fits for them. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that today, maybe with our, with our guest as well, who's been in, in the game for a little while, uh, but I'm definitely excited about uh, our guest today, Phil, but for that, man, how, how are you? How's the, how's the dark household going? Dark household is crazy as usual. You know, even though we only have two in the house, I feel like my youngest is the equivalent of three or four. He had <laughs> a couple state cup games, you know, they won in a shootout in their quarterfinals, I guess. And then they, uh, you know, he had to have a basketball game right after a soccer game, of course, had to miss his flag football game because of the, the PK shootout took it a little longer. So he had to miss his flag football, you know, but that's, that's kind of the story of our, of our week. It started on Friday night with Kirsten's game. Unfortunately, we had another loss, but you know, we're, we're hoping we can pull it together for the last few games, make playoffs, but you know, just a lot of stuff going on. The big thing though, I was able to clear out all those boxes that I got from my dad's house of tools and things. I don't know what half the tools do because my dad was the, the tool guy, but you know, I figure gotta, gotta organize them at least and put them in and, and hopefully figure out what they do at some point, you know, just figure it out and just start playing with them and just figure out what they do and you know. As long as there's nothing explosive, you should be okay. It's pretty much, it's like coaching, right? You, you got these tools in the toolbox. You're not sure what they quite, what they do until you figure it out on the, on the field. And then you can put it together and, and figure out uh, how to use these yeah, things. The Phil, best. I just got a bad image of finding some YouTube video of you doing something crazy with a tool. Like you see those workout videos where you see people on the workout benches doing things you're like, how do they even come up with that idea on that workout bench? You know, that's, that's going to be you with like a skill yeah. saw or something. I don't know. Well, I don't know if I'm going to mess with the skill saws, but you know, that is how create, you know, creativity creates new things. That's how new things happen. So you never know. You never know what's going to happen. Anyway, today we have a great guest, as you talked about. You know, this is a, a man who paved the way for you at Baylor before you and Marcy were able to do what you did there, founded the program there, has been working with the Nigeria women's national team um, at the Pitt Panthers, being, being working there as well. We got Randy Waldrum. Randy, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I had to get a laugh out of listening to you guys talk about the tools. I I, I barely know what a screwdriver does. So yeah, I, I just call somebody so <laughs> so I can relate. Yeah, I, 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 I can relate. But no, thank you for having me and great to see you guys again and appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's funny you say that because my wife said, what are you going to do with all these tools? I said, well, you know, if people come and work at our house, maybe they won't have it in their bag or something and they can use it. Um. But, uh, you know, uh, so, so coach Waldrum, you know, we, we on this show just love hearing stories. We love hearing what got you to where you are, what got you to be able to do what you're doing today. 
and that you get to do what you're doing today, right? And so how did you, you know, just briefly share your story. How did you develop your passion for soccer, for coaching, for leadership? And how did you end up with the Nigerian national team and yeah. Pitt Panthers and where you're at today? Yeah. Well, the, I, I guess the, the, the version that for maybe the listeners to understand is my family, my dad and his three brothers owned a sign manufacturing company. So you guys, I, Paul can relate being down in Texas, but like Dairy Queens, you know, or big restaurant chains down there, they made all the signs for Dairy Queen. So those kind of signs, hotel signs, you know, businesses. And of course, my brother, my sister, all my cousins, everybody went to work, you know, for the family business. And I was the kind of the one that was like, I don't really want to do this. You know, I, I, I love playing soccer. And so I went off to Midwestern State there, a small school up in Wichita Falls, Texas, and played four years there and got my degree in education because back in those days, you couldn't make a living. There was no club soccer. The coaches weren't getting paid. So you couldn't, the only way you could make a living coaching and staying in soccer was to coach at high school or college. You know, we just didn't have club soccer back in those days that were paying coaches. So I got my degree in education knowing that the only way is I, I, I could teach. So after a very brief pro career, I was drafted in the third round by LA. I think I was in the team maybe four or five months, got traded to Indianapolis, was there through the season, and then the leagues folded. So um, had a little one on the way and, you know, knew I had to go get a real job and, you know, take care of family. And so I actually started out my coaching career in, in high school. And actually the high school that I went to, I went to as a student, I went to Irving MacArthur High School. And when I went back at my first coaching job was at Irving MacArthur High School, which was kind of weird because a lot of the teachers were still there that I'd had just a couple of years earlier. So now, now instead of being in their classroom, I'm in the teacher's lounge, you know, with them and seeing them smoke and do things that I didn't know teachers did, you know, like in the building probably. Yeah, during those that's days. right. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I knew that I wanted to really coach at college. And so I kind of had a plan that after five years, if I didn't have a college job, I was going to leave. I didn't want to be labeled as a high school coach. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I had a, I've always been very goal oriented of what I wanted to do. So fortunately, it just kind of worked out that after my fifth year at MacArthur, I ended up getting Shellis Heinemann came to Texas at that time to take over SMU, the men's program. So he had recruited my goalkeeper and I was, I guess, the only guy in Texas he really knew. So he offered me the assistant job. And so I was kind of doing club soccer and the assistant at SMU and, and kind of got my foot in the door with the college game that way. And then, of course, my first job was at University of Tulsa, where back in those days, the late 80s, coaches coached both men and women. And so all up until this point, I'd always coached on the boys' side. And at Tulsa was the first time I really was exposed to coaching women. And just honestly fell in love with it because I felt like on the men's side at the collegiate level, they kind of know it, you know, they, 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 or they think they know it. They have all the answers already. Whereas the women, especially back in those days, there weren't a lot of good coaches on the women's side. There were still a lot of just parent coaches at, at the youth level. There weren't, you know, there were only a handful of women's college teams back then. I think probably only around a hundred teams, uh, maybe even a little less. And so, um, Again, I, I knew my path. I wanted to coach college, and then I knew someday I'd love to coach in a national team. And I just was watching the men's game and seeing this recycling of the same coaches in all of those positions. And so I just kind of made the conscious decision to go, go into the women's game at that point. And that's when the opportunity at Baylor came around. So I, 
the biggest decision was not whether I wanted to take the Baylor job or not. It was more of, do I want to get out of the men's game and go just solely into the women's game? And would that be the right move for me from a career path standpoint? And once I made the decision, I've never really looked back. You know, I've never had a regret of leaving the men's game. You know, we had a, a great three years there at, at Baylor. It's it, funny story. Paul can relate to this because he obviously took the program there much further than I ever did. But that first year, you know, I can remember scheduling games for Baylor and and there were still a lot of new programs coming in at the time, but we went 17 and three that first year that we ever had a program. Now, I was smart enough not to overschedule in the non-conference. And I knew that back then A&M and Nebraska were the two kind of powerhouses in the conference. And that's the two teams we, we lost to. And um, I can remember sitting around a television and all the girls on selection day thinking that we were going to get in. And I knew I'd had enough experience to know we weren't getting in. We didn't have a we didn't have a significant win and we didn't have a, you know, the strength of schedule to get in, but I always kind of laugh about that because they just believe, you know, they, they just, as every game went by, we won more and more as a first year program. They really started to believe that we were that good. In fact, we played Nebraska. I think they were third or fourth in the country. I think we only lost two to one uh, A&M. We lost five to four in the big 12 tournament and in, in, in overtime. Although I won't tell you, we had a four, one lead in that game. <laughs> losing five four we don't talk about that but no. uh but um no that that's kind of how i got the ball rolling and then an interesting thing that you might you may find interesting is coming from texas i being born and raised there i grew up you either kind of grew up an, an aggie fan or a longhorn fan and back then because of football i grew up a longhorn fan so texas was always kind of my dream job and after the third year at Baylor, that job came open. And the two finalists were myself and Chris Petroselli. And he had just a year or two earlier won a national championship at Notre Dame. And they were one of the top two teams in the, in the country. And I'm thinking, I've got this Texas job because he's not leaving Notre Dame for Texas. And sure enough, he left Notre Dame for Texas. And as, you know, fate would have it, Notre Dame called two or three days later. And I ended up taking the Notre Dame job. And it ended up being the best. You know, it worked out the best for, for me. And, you know, we went on and had the good fortune to win a couple of national championships there. But it kind of was at that time that I really started looking at national teams and getting involved. And when I was at Notre Dame, I kind of took over Trinidad and Tobago's national team, trying to get them into the World Cup. And we were the last team out. Ecuador beat us in a home and away leg. We, we, we tied up in Ecuador and then got back at home and I think outshot them 17 to 2. and they scored in the 92nd minute to advance to the World Cup. So we missed in that opportunity. And then I guess, really long story short, I, I left Notre Dame, kind of went into the pros, you know, with the dash for three years. And and then uh, after they let me go, I ended up coming back to the college game. And that's kind of how I got back to Pitt. But you ask about Nigeria, and that's really a really interesting thing is because when I was in between jobs between Houston and and Pitt, and I was just kind of looking what was going to be my next move in life. My phone one day in September just of 2018 just started blowing up. And people were going like, congratulations, congratulations. I'm going, for what? And they're going, well, you just got named Nigeria's new uh, national team coach. Well, I had never spoken to Nigerian at all. Uh, in fact, the only reason that there was a conversation was Sunil Galati had called 
about a month earlier and said, would you be interested in a Nigeria job? And of course, I was in between jobs and I was like, sure, I'd be interested. And that's all. I never spoke to Nigeria, but they announced it. It was in the papers. Everything came out. So from September to late November, early December, I'm trying to reach the Federation going, well, if I'm your coach, we probably ought to discuss a contract and the terms and all of that kind of thing. And I could never get an answer. And so the pit job came open and I took it and I let Nigeria know that, hey, I'm taking another job. I haven't heard from you. Of course, then they started writing going, oh, well, you, we, please, we've already got you a place. We got you, you know, an apartment, everything set, you know, don't take the pit job. And I said, no, it's too late. So they ended up in that time hiring uh, Thomas Dinnerby from Sweden, and he took them through the 2019 World Cup. And then he left again in 2020, I believe, during the Olympic qualifications. So they called me back. And asked me if I would do it. And I said, the only way I would do it is if I could keep my job at Pitt. I knew Nigeria and the lack of resources and, you know, no insurance. And I wasn't going to live in Nigeria. And all the things that I knew were issues there. I, I said, that would be the only way I would do it. And so that's kind of how that came to being. I think they went ahead and announced it again the second time before we ever got a contract done. So, so they, then they couldn't really come back and say no to me on the pit situation because they, they had already announced it two different times before they did their, their due diligence. But that's kind of how I got into that. That really all came about through uh, Sunil Galati. That's, that's fantastic. I don't know how many people get a national team job without applying for it. That's amazing. <laughs> that's right. That is, that is incredible. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And we'll, we'll get into that run you guys were able to have and all the exciting things that have happened there here in a little bit. But there's one other thing I want to mention because I know I'm part of it and I, I hope other people are getting to be, but you have a Telegram group, Telegram's this relatively new thing. It's like Paul and I got on Clubhouse for the month and a half that it was a really big thing in the soccer community. I know it's still a thing, it's just not yeah. nearly as big. But can you just talk a little bit about that? What's the, what's the desire for that? Why, why do you start this thing? It's not like you don't have anything going on right now. So <laughs> it's, you know, what, what would kind of, incite you to do that? And then, you know, is it, is it part of something bigger you got going on? Or is it just something you wanted to do for, for fun on the, on the side? No, you know what, what, I, what I've always enjoyed doing is I was really lucky as a younger coach back in the day of having some really good mentors in my life, you know, a Shellis Heinemann, you know, a Bob Gansler, a, a Mooch Meiernick before he passed away. And you know, I could go on down the list. My high school coach, Simon Sanchez, before he passed away, was probably responsible for the passion that I had for the game. So I, I was really lucky in that regard. And then I've spent probably 15 to 18 years with U.S. soccer at their, as a staff coach for coaching education. So I love teaching the coaching courses and that kind of thing. And so I've always liked that piece of it, coaching education and kind of mentoring and and helping, you know, when I can. So I just, over the years, I've just had a lot of coaches reach out, like I'm sure you guys have as well, and asked opinions on things and how do you do this or how do you do that? And so I just thought, you know what, it's, it's a good way to start this coach's community, especially in today's world where coaching education has gotten so expensive. And of course, Back when we went through our license program, you're there for a week or two weeks, you know, or 10 days or whatever. Now, of course, you know, the license are over a year and quite expensive. So I just thought there was still a need to give back to the game that way with with young coaches 
who might not have the the money or the wherewithal to go through coaching education at this point, but that we could get on this coaching community and share some ideas. And we've really just got it cranked up. It, it's just in the last few days have some people started to discuss and throw some practices in and some ideas about it. But I'm I'm trying to share a couple of practices or videos or things each week. And then we've got a networking room in there where all the other coaches that have joined can can throw out a topic and discuss amongst themselves. So it's just a it's just another way to give us a a pathway to maybe learn from each other because, you know, even after doing this almost 35 years now, it's I'm still learning, you know, and still want to learn. And we're, you know, we if we're going to stay on top of the game and the trends of the game now, you you can't stay set in your old way. So it's just that it's just that way to kind of give something back. And, and, you know, that's, yeah, that was the, the purpose behind it. Yeah, I could say, Randy, just from my experience, like you've always been accessible to, to younger coaches and any, any coaches, and you've never, you've never been a coach. You have every opportunity to come off as arrogant and know it all, because I, I think you do know it all, you know, a lot at least, but you've always been very accessible, very kind and generous with with your knowledge of the game and, and even to the point of never, never really feeling intimidated by, by yeah. you. And I, and I've always appreciated that. And I think this is just another extension. You've been able to extend yourself to even more coaches that way. So, um, I value that. I really appreciate that as a, as a coach who I think probably, I didn't call you a lot, but anytime I did call you, you always answered the phone and I'm like, gosh, I can't believe Randy's actually yeah. talking to me, you know, <laughs> like, you know, so that's, I, I can just say like, that is a, a great thing for coaches other coaches to understand too, is that I, I love that. Like you're never done learning. Yeah. The, the game is constantly changing and, and that's, that's one thing I love about the game, right? It yeah. is constantly changing and as coaches continuing to, to rediscover kind of yourself at times, but also you taught me one time, like, Hey, just always be true to who, who you are. Yeah. Never. And you told me one time I was going never, never make excuses for that. And that, that stuck with me for, for years. Yeah. So I love that yeah. you're continuing to do that other avenues. No, I, I appreciate you saying that. And and I do think there's a lot of young coaches out there. I just feel like I was fortunate to have some good people in my life. And if I can help one person do one thing better, I think then, then we're, we're making the game better. And that's, that's what we're all in it for. I had the unfortunate opportunity to have to go back to Tulsa last week for one of my former players passed away. And yeah. so I went back to his funeral. But kind of in line with what we're talking about and always learning, when I saw a lot of my players, and these were my men's players from back in my early days at Tulsa, when I saw all those guys, I just said, hey, guys, I have to apologize. And they're like, for what? And I go, how bad of a coach I was back then. You know, I said, before I knew anything about sports science, we we ran those 1530s with no rest, you know, 15 up, 30 back, and then go again. I said, I thought if I made you guys puke or pass out, we had a good day. You know, I said, I, I just... Yeah. I didn't know, you know, and, and, uh, so we, we, we do all learn and, and still learning. And as you said, the game's changing. So you've got to stay on top of it. Yeah. And water was for wimps, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, you exactly. either drink of water. That's yeah. Yeah. You didn't need a break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Randy, through your career, obviously, and just everything that you're, you're doing and have done, I mean, there's gotta be something that, you know, you can always come back to like, and, and we love hearing people's different stories on this, but what it, what would you say is your why? Like what, what makes you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Yeah. Well, I think my why, honestly, Paul has changed over the years and I've got to be real honest about that. Mm -hmm. When I started coaching, it was all about just trying to be a successful coach. And that meant 
winning games. So you're hyper-focused on just winning. How do I make the team better? How can I win games? You know, because I didn't have that maturity to understand as a young coach that there's more to it than just winning games. And I think as we all get older, we realize now the winning is important because we have to keep our jobs and those kind of things. I mean, we get, you know, we, we get what we're in this for. But I think we've all, as we've gotten older, learned to appreciate how we're changing these players' lives, you know, and how we can maybe have an influence, even if it's a small piece, into a player's life and their development. So I get as much satisfaction now seeing our former players go off, get married, have kids. You know, I've, I've got the, the player that passed away, ironically, was David Gordon that played for me at Tulsa. And his daughter, Ashton, played for me the last two years here at Pitt. And we've just hired her as our assistant coach. So yeah. stories like that where you see you see the players go off and, and have a successful life, you know, and some stayed in the game and, and some don't. So I think the why is, for me, just to try to create an environment where we can get the most out of the player that we possibly feel like we can and that that player can achieve the goals that they hope they reach. But at the end of the day, that, they come out of this with a better understanding about life in general and what it takes to be, you know, a good person and lead a productive life and to do things the right way. And I, I, so my why has changed over the years. And, and as we've gotten older and a little bit more mature, so I'm happy to say it's changed over the years. You know, I was probably in it for the wrong reasons early. It was my fix because I wasn't playing anymore. So it's like, okay, I get my competitive fix by coaching and winning games. And that's the way I thought you were always measured as just by wins and losses. And I've just learned that that's not the case. Yeah. I, there's such a great lesson there for, for all of us, you know, that it's, it's okay for your why to change, right? It's okay. As we talked about, the game is constantly changing and developing and people yeah. we're through our experiences that we have in life, whether it's influences of people or experiences, it can change, mm -hmm. you know, why we do what we do. And I love you saying that I've always gotten that from you, that it is about those players. And that's something we hear constantly on this show from, from great coaches and great mentors that it, it's hardly ever about the X's and O's, you know, right. that it really is about that is that co that's the common theme, the bond that we have that drives us. But at the end of the day, it's about that, you know, how are we, how are we developing young people and, and sharing, you know, what, what we have experienced, it, whether successes or failures, right. We, right. we learn right. And, and hopefully pass, pass those on. There's so much to, to, to dive in here to. I, we talked a little bit about, you talked a little bit about that, you know, how you took the, you had the, you, you're given the Nigerian national team job, basically without knowing it, you took the pit job and then were able to take the Nigerian team at the same time. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about Ben's role within pit at some point too, and an amazing coach you developed within your own household. But uh, take us through that, through that year, uh, a great year with pit, a great year with the Nigerian national team, just kind of take us through the. Some of the things maybe we we didn't see or know that that kind of made that such a such a great a great year. Yeah, well, I can tell you this: the start of the year wasn't a great year. <laughs> a year, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of all started for us, as far as Nigeria is concerned, with the African Cup of Nations, and um, you know, we went through the Cup of Nations, and Nigeria just expects to win it because they won it, I think, nine or ten times, and Nigeria just expects because they're Nigeria. It's kind of, you know, ordained that they should automatically win. 
and we got into Paul, we got into the game against Cameroon in the round of 16, which we won. And that qualified us for the world cup. So to me, that was the, the big goal. Winning the Cup of Nations to me was secondary, but Nigeria, it was almost equally as important, if not more so than, than the World Cup qualification. And so in the semifinal of that tournament, we were playing Morocco and in Morocco in front of about 45,000 people. And in the second half, we're 0-0 and we had a player about five or six minutes into the second half, we had a player step on one of their players on their, their feet, you know, two players coming together for a tackle. And our player stepped on her foot, and it was an immediate red card. So now we're down a player. We actually score a goal, down a player. They come back a few minutes later and score to tie it. Then five minutes later, same thing, step on a foot, another red card. So now we're two players down. We've got about 30 minutes left of regulation time to get through. And there's chaos on the bench. I mean, my Nigerian assistants refused to make some subs I was trying to make. They had the cards, and I was getting Lauren Gregg to go get this sub ready, you know, cause I'm, I'm on the sidelines trying to, you know, figure out two players down. I got to, I got to move some things here. Right. And I'm looking around and five minutes later, the sub's still not ready. And I'm going, Lauren, where's this sub? And she's like, Randy, he, he won't fill out the card. So I have to go over to the bench and, you know, he wanted input of who to put in. And I said, I don't need your input. Right. Just fill the card out and let's go. So anyway, long story short, we made it through 30 minutes of regulation. Then we made it through 30 minutes of overtime and got it to penalty kick. So we played 60 minutes, a little over 60 minutes with two players down and got it. So everything we did, I think, was right. You know, we got it to a point to give ourselves a chance to at least win. And we lost in penalties. So at the end of the game, there was a bit of a confrontation with he and I afterwards because he had not done what I told him to do. And, and then our players boycotted and wouldn't come out of their rooms for the next two days because we still had to play a third place match and because they hadn't been paid. So they boycotted, wouldn't come out of their room. Long story short, we the Federation comes in and brings a little bit of money for them and appeases them. And so we play the third place match the next day, but we hadn't done any recovery training after playing all that time, two players down, didn't do any preparations for, for Zambia. And we end up losing the game 1-0, probably could have and should have won by five. We just couldn't put the ball in the net. So now then we don't come out with any kind of a medal. So for the next six months, I am the worst coach in the country. I mean, the media in Nigeria is all over me. The Federation, I wasn't sure if they're going to keep me or not. I mean, it was really, really a difficult time to a point where I had to stop reading anything in the media. You know, people were sending me articles from there and it's just like, I, I can't keep reading this, you know, and, you know, that kind of went through there with Nigeria. And we finally, after the AFCON, then we went off and played the U.S. twice. We played Canada twice and we played, seems like we had one more big game in there. But, oh, Japan, we flew to Japan and played Japan. So I was like, we don't need coming off these losses. We don't need to play five games against three teams that are three of the best teams in the world. Like we need to play a few games that we're going to regain our, our feet. But the Federation, you know, they, they book them for various reasons. And I'm sure all those countries paid for us to come, you know, is why they, they booked those. So needless to say, we lost the first game to Canada. 
We drew with Canada the second game. We lost both games to the U.S., even though we played well and played close. And then we lost the game to Japan, although we played well in Japan. So all of these games were away. And so now we've lost, you know, those five games. We've lost Zambia in the third place game. We had lost to Morocco in the semifinal. So we've lost like seven games on the bounce. Then they send us to Mexico and we play Mexico and we lose 1-0. We play Colombia, we lose 1-0. So now we're whatever, eight, nine games, you know, on the bounce of losing. So it's only added to how bad of a coach, you know, that I am in the country of Nigeria. So we finally recovered and I think beat Costa Rica at the end, uh, the last match in Mexico. And then we, we went on to um, Turkey and we played Haiti and we played uh, New Zealand uh, right before the World Cup. And we won both of those games. So we kind of started to see the team, you know, start to gain some, some confidence again. But going into the World Cup, you know, we were supposed to have five weeks in Nigeria to train and then two more weeks in Australia to get ready because all the other countries were in camp six, eight weeks before the World Cup. And Nigeria canceled our camp in Nigeria. So they said, just give me the 23-player roster and we'll fly you guys into Australia on like July 2nd or 3rd. So we basically had 10 days, you know, to prepare for a World Cup. And maybe a little bit what this might be where being a college college coach helped because we have short (laughs) preseason. And I thought, well, I I know how to maximize a few days, you know. I've done this a long time. But it was really a trying time because at that time the federation wasn't speaking to me. You know, they tried to get me to, to uh, take a player that I didn't want to take. And, um, you know, my contract says I take my players and all this is pretty well documented. So without getting into to all those details again, I, I won't bore you guys with that, but w- there wasn't conversation, you know, ahead of the world cup. So I didn't really know until I got on the plane to go to the world cup, if I was actually going to be the coach going into the world cup. So we had 10 days prepared. I just said, to my own mind, you know, I'm going to spend 10 days just preparing for Canada. That was our first match. And I said, if we don't get something out of that game, we're in trouble because you've got Australia as the host nation. And, you know, if you lose to Canada, odds are you're going to lose to Australia. And, you know, three points, even if we could beat Ireland, wouldn't be enough to get us through. So I knew we had to get something. So for those 10 days, we worked on two things. I just worked on defending in a block encountering because I knew we wouldn't have the ball very much and we just drilled it for for 10 days and fortunately had you know it, it, it worked I mean we had some shaky moments against Canada and they dominated in possession we had a few opportunities and we kind of grew into the game but I don't know if you guys remember but we saved a big penalty on Christine Sinclair and I think that really helped us gain some momentum in the second half so we got out of there with a point which was absolutely huge for us and you could kind of see the girls' confidence just continuing to grow, you know. And then we got into that Australia game. And, you know, I think, Paul, there's always key moments in matches. You know, you can remember big matches that you guys had at Baylor and key things that changed games. And we went down with about five minutes left before the half in Australia. We had played well defensively and created a few chances. But we had, you know, the worst time to give up a goal five minutes before the half. And then fortunately, it was a couple of minutes of extra time and we actually got the goal back right before halftime. So I think that really was key to everything because now instead of being a goal down, we're, we're, we're going into halftime tied. 
And then the second half, we came out flying. You know, we scored two more. We're up 3-1. And I can remember looking at my assistant, uh, Kyle, and I'm going, can you believe there's 18 minutes left and we're winning this game 3-1? Like, how are we doing this, you know? And and uh, I think there was 11 minutes of extra time. It was the longest 11 minutes ever. They finally scored a goal late to make it 3-2, but luckily there was only about a minute of that 11 minutes left. I think if they'd have scored earlier in the 11 minutes, they may have come back and and got a result, but we end up winning that game. So now it's, now we're looking at, we can win the group, you know, now we could still get knocked out completely if we don't get something out of the Ireland game. And so we went into that match and, and, and got a draw. We, we played at the same time Australia was playing Canada. So we're kind of keeping the headsets on, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to go for it too much because if you lose the game, then you're out. But you know, we it was, we wanted to make sure we at least got a point out of it. And then we found out in about the last 15 minutes that Australia had really opened up the score on Canada that we were in regardless. So we tried to make a push for it at the end and just didn't quite get it, but finished second in the group. And then obviously taking on England, you know, in the in the round of 16. And I thought we played really well, our, our best game. We, we were kind of on the front foot. I think England expected us to defend like we had all three games. And we decided to go at them a little bit. And I think it really worked. And, uh, you know, we took that game into penalty kick. So really, really proud of the job they did. It's the best results Nigeria have ever had in the World Cup. And to think that we could do that in 10 days was was a pretty special group of players to be able to do that. But all the while we're doing that, Ben is back here at home getting getting pit ready for a, for a big season. And, you know, we we came into this in 2018 to a program that, had two winning seasons in 20, 22 years. In fact, you'll, you'll appreciate this, Paul. The first game I had at Baylor as a brand new program was against Pitt, and they were a brand oh. new program. Pitt came down to Baylor and played us, and Pitt scored right off the bat and went up one. And I'm thinking, because you don't know what you have. It's a brand new program, you know? And right. I'm going, well, this could be a long season. And we ended up winning eight to one against Pitt. <laughs> but Pitt had, was just really in a bad, bad place when we took it over in 2018. So the last three years, we'd started winning and put together some winning seasons, which they had never done. And of course, in 2022, got into the NCAA tournament for the first time and made a good run, made it to the Sweet 16. So this year we had, you know, we had high expectations and Look, I, I couldn't, I had to be honest, I, I, I couldn't and I wouldn't have taken on the Nigeria job if I didn't have been here because he knows, he's basically been running it. You know, I mean, he knows what I want. We think alike. Our game model is, we, we, we see the game the same way, the way we want to play. And my AD was really good about supporting us on this. She's very good about giving back and, and community service and that kind of thing. And she understood the importance of from a branding standpoint, what this could also do for us from a university standpoint. And so she's been great the whole process, but Ben really made things click. And I think I got back three or four days deep into preseason when we got things going. But, uh, you know, this year we, we had a, we had a great year, even a better year than last year and getting to the elite eight. And, you know, probably a highlight of that for me was going to Arkansas and beating Arkansas there at their place when they, I think had 32 game winning streak or something at home. And as you well know, the way they play, it's a very difficult team to play against. They're, they're athletic and strong and direct, but it, it's funny because Ben had called the coach of Tennessee had called Ben asking about Xavier because they had them in the NCAA tournament. 
And after they discussed Xavier a little bit, he asked Ben about Arkansas. And Ben said, you know what? I think if we can play our game, I, I think we can score three goals on them. And he goes, sure. There's no way you're scoring three goals on him. <laughs> so after the game, I told Ben, I said, call him back and tell him he's right. We didn't score three. We scored four, you know. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's, I mean, Arkansas obviously is a really, really good team. And, and that was a, a huge win for us. And, and then to go on to beat Memphis to get us to, again, Florida State. We played Florida State, I think, three times this year. We lost five games or six games this year. Three were to Florida State. You know, we played them in the regular season and then we played them in the conference tournament semifinal and then to the NCAA tournament and you know they obviously Brian had a had a great team there as as we all saw you know through the through the tournament but a really good year so yeah you're right it was uh, I've been blessed and yeah I, I, at the end of the day it all worked out it really was looking bleak because I, I really thought going into the World Cup we could easily get beat by three four five goals in either of those first two two matches I just I just didn't think we were prepared. So, so much credit goes to the players who bought into what we were trying to do and, and just, you know, put all their grievances aside and decided to really focus on their football. So it was, it was good. And I hope the people around the world got to see how talented the, the players really are. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, we were definitely watching as a family and I just remember just the emotional roller coaster of that, just from, from our standpoint, of course we're not in it. Right. Yeah. But like, the emotional roller coaster of of all of that and just being, you know, super excited about, you know, just watching those women play and the passion they had, the belief that they had, yeah, that they could do it. And that that's what came across to to me and Marsh is like they yeah. they they're not just doing they they believe they actually can do yeah. this. And yeah. without that, you don't you really don't have a chance. But no. as a as a coach and a staff, you can instill that into them that you guys obviously did a great job of that. Yeah. Um it, another question I was going to, have you ever had, have you ever lost eight or nine games in a row ever in your career when you're going through that stretch with Nigeria? You're like, wait a minute, I don't think I've ever lost that many games Yeah, in a row. you know what? I haven't thought about it, but I think you're right. I don't think I ever have. Um, yeah, I hope I never do again, too. But, yeah, uh, that's not fun. That's not fun, but. That's not fun, uh, but it was, yeah, it was a, it was a really tough stretch. But, you know, we're, we all get challenged in life different ways. You know, it could be like that, a coach on the field in, in, in a bad string of results. You know, it could be something in your personal. I mean, like we're all challenged with different things in life. And I think, um, you know, you have to, you have to learn to be resilient. And as I told you before, you know, stay true to what you believe in and stick to it. And at the end of the day, you, you know, I, I've never been one to want to have regrets of how I did something. And so I've always had pretty strong convictions of believing uh, in how I go about trying to do it. And not that I don't change sometimes when I see a, a better way, but I think you've really got to, you know, really stay true to who you are and believe in what you believe in. And, you know, I think, you know, however people view it in my life, you know, my faith's important to me. So I, I, I think just think God's got a plan for me and it works the way it's supposed to work out in the end. Yeah. I love that. Hey, Randy, I was thinking as we were talking through, through some of this, you know, I, I kind of put it together in my mind. And I think this would be beneficial for, for me and beneficial, I think, for some of our coaches. You've had the opportunity to, you started a program from scratch mm -hmm. at Baylor. Yeah. You went to Notre Dame and took over a program that had just won a national championship. Oh. Yeah. So you're trying to implement, like, really, really a young coach. Yeah. Had three years at a Division I institution and then taking over a national championship program. And then, and then going on, obviously, leading that to other national championships. 
And then you had the opportunity to rebuild a, a struggling program of tw after 20 years of not yeah. having success. Those are all pretty unique situations yeah. that a, a coach has. How do you, I mean, can you kind of put that summarize in, in one, maybe just goes back to you doing things the way you know how to do it. And, and none of that really mattered. I don't know, but can you, yeah. can you kind of put that together for me? Well, you know, they're all three a little different because for me, Baylor was fun building from scratch. You know, we didn't have anything. There was a club team there, but, yeah. but you know, there was never a varsity team. So I think only one or two of the club players actually made our roster for the fall, but it was fun because Everything was new for everybody, you know, I mean, we didn't, we didn't have the field. So to see a field being built, you know, to, <laughs> you know, ordering uniforms and not having it, you know, and, and all kinds of things for being a first. Plus I put a lot of miles on my, that company car there at Baylor of just going up and down, you know, the, the highways in Texas and, and really hit Texas hard, you know, to just get enough players to play in the fall. Cause I, I don't think I was hired till February. And back then that was the signing date in February. And then we were playing that August. So, you know, I was scrambling just to make sure we had a team. And so that was, it, it really, it was fun and it was enjoyable. And then to see those kids win, I don't, I think we went 10 and 0 before we ever lost a game at the beginning of the year. So to see those players and their confidence grow and the excitement of something new and the buzz on campus was really neat to see, you know, so that, that was one thing to do it, to do it from scratch. And the thing I loved about that is I could build it my way, you know, with my players. And, and so that, that had its own unique sets of challenges, of course. I think going to Notre Dame and taking over for Chris, being a top five team in the country, having come off a national championship, there's a lot of pressure to go, I can't screw this up, you know, because it's, it's like, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to be the coach that's going to follow Anson, right? And, Chris didn't have, you know, 20 national championships, but it's kind of the same thing. Brian following Mark Krikorian, you know, and he and I had this conversation. It's, it's not easy, you know, to come into that situation because if you win, it's, well, it was Chris's players or, you know, it's, it was Mark's players, you know, for Brian. And it'll be that way for a few years when Anson steps down, but easier in one regard, because you already had the players there. So you had a talented, we took a talented team. Difficult because you had to find that balance of what do you change to put your imprint on it versus how much of what they've been doing do you keep in place because you don't want to just, you know, change everything. They've been successful the way they are, they were. So that brought on its set of challenges as well. But I think the pressure for that job was probably more difficult than anything else, which is, and, and probably in hindsight, a lot of it was pressure I put on myself. You know, I think we all put her, put herself under more pressure than sometimes maybe we're really under, but I, I, I just had this, I had this burning feeling that I can't fail. You know, I have to make sure this is stays good. And then the hardest one probably has been here at Pitt, even though we've turned it relatively quick because what we had to overcome is not only the first year we just inherited the team. We didn't have time to recruit. So 2018, I had to go through the year with the players the coach before me had. And they just weren't, in most cases, they weren't even Division One players. They clearly weren't ACC players. And it was awful. We didn't win a conference game. We, I think we only scored two or three goals in the ACC. And we gave up about 50. I mean, it was, you, you knew as soon as you gave up a goal in a game, that that's at the moment the game was over, right? We just didn't have, just didn't have enough talent. 
So that first year was really kind of a wash. And then year two, we really just blew it up and started all over again. We brought in 17 new players as freshmen. So that second year, I think we had nine freshmen starting for us, you know, but we had to rebuild it. But the hard part of that, Paul, was the fact that we'd had 22 years of losing this perception out there with club coaches, as you well know, and high school coaches is we're not sending our kids to pit. Like, why would we do that? You know, you, the team has lost. And the fear was that because recruiting in the women's game, as you well know, is two years in advance. So we're Ben and I are looking at it going, well, we can't wait till 2020 to get good kids because they will lose in 2018 and 2019 and 2020. <laughs> and then people will look at it and say, well, Randy, you haven't changed anything. You're still losing. So we knew we had to change things quick. So we did go the international route and grab some Canadians. And I think we brought in an Icelandic player and, had a player from Spain and, you know, so I think we had a German player in her last year. So we kind of went that route to help us kind of start to win a little bit quicker. But I think that was probably the hardest of the jobs, just overcoming perception that was out there. I think we're still doing it right now, Paul. I mean, we're just now starting to get into the door of the better players in the country because we had a couple of years of winning. But to a lot of these young players, you know, it's pit as well as we've done the last two years, a lot of young players still don't think of Pitt as a powerhouse, right? It's, it's Carolina has history. Florida state has history. Duke has history. Pitt has bad history, you know? So we're, <laughs> we're just now building our history. So I think it's still going to take a few more years of winning and being in the tournament before the young players start to realize, wait, they, they are a top program, even though we are now, it, it, it's, we still got more work to do to, you know, still to start to land the top kids here in the country. Yeah. I remember those conversations that Marcy and I would have with club coaches when we took over Baylor. It was like, Hey, we're glad you're here, but good luck with that. Yeah. And that was yeah. the common thread. I'm sure you met yeah. the same resistance and oh, yeah. you differently than us, you bring in a reputation of success to pit that Marcy and I were still newbies on the block. Right. So yeah. there's a difference there, but through, through all of that, Randy, I mean, you know, this, this show is obviously about, you know, leadership in, in soccer, like through those challenges, like what, what leadership lessons do you feel like you learned kind of through your career that, that you could pass on to some of our younger coaches? Yeah. I think the biggest thing for me, I think is everywhere I've gone, I've, I've had a really good picture in my mind of how I think the game should be played, what I think it should look like. And I think we do a really good job wherever we've been of being able to communicate that to the players because that's a big part of it, right? Get the players to buy in. If you don't have the buy-in, then then you're going to have issues. So I think we we're, we do a really good job of having this vision of what it should look like and then having a way of presenting it to our players that they buy into that vision. I think the leadership aspect of it is one thing that, that I learned years ago was if I set high expectations, and high standards and, you know, whether we call it core values or, you know, every program does it a little bit different. It, it's just like you discipline your children at home, right? They, they tell you they don't want discipline, but they really need to be disciplined and they want discipline, right? And it's the same way, I think, in running the program. And we're not, we're not a type program that's got 15 or 20, you know, rules in our rule book. We've just got a few rules and a few core values that we live by that are, it's really nothing more than, you know, about being a good person and being respectful and, you know, 
doing the right things with your life. And, and, and I think, you know, we have to try to do that as the leaders and we have to, everything we present, we have to present it that way. And we have to keep reinforcing that to our kids. And then I think from a standpoint of what you, what you accept from your team is what you're going to get. So make sure your expectations are high enough that you're okay with accepting high standards. If you, if you set high standards, but then you accept, you know, lower standards, then, you know, then you're going to have a problem. So I think we've always felt like players are going to make mistakes and we're okay, you know, with that. I mean, that's what we're here for. We understand that, but there's, does, doesn't give them an excuse for not putting the effort in and not putting the work in and, and, and not living their life away from the field and the expectations that we have with the way they treat people. And the biggest thing I get a kick out of, we went to West Virginia for a preseason game, I think this year and stayed at a hotel and, you know, we're eating breakfast in the hotel and the lady just came in and said, are you guys the coaches? And we're like, yeah, we're, we're, we're the coaches. And he goes, I just want to tell you, we had Ohio State in here a couple of weeks ago. They did like $13,000 worth of damage to the hotel. Like your women have been such a pleasure to, to be here. You know, they pick up after themselves. They do things like those are the kind of things. And I know you had those kind of kids, you know, at Baylor. So those kind of things make you realize that you, you are making a difference, that you have set some standards that they just do it. It's not punishment. It's not, it's just the way we do things. And I think that's kind of from a leadership standpoint. There's, we could do a whole podcast on leadership, couldn't we? But those are some things I think it starts from is just setting your standards and your expectations, whether that means on the field, off the field, both, however. And we kind of do that with our whole program. We just have a set of core values or expectations that, that we just feel like are extremely important to be successful. And, and you know, um, we, we constantly are reinforcing those. I think, once yeah, you do, I think once you do that too, what you end up developing is a group of players who become your leaders that deal with a lot of those things. Then you don't have to always be the bad guy. So a lot of those things are dealt with by our players that we probably, there's probably things that have happened that we don't know about and probably don't need to know about, but it's been handled in the locker room. So it, it, it brings great leadership with, with the players. So I, I think if you talk to any of our players, I don't think they would tell you that we're dictators and we, you know, it's my way or the highway kind of thing. I think they're fully engaged in this is all our program and this is the way we do things. It's not Randy's program. It's not Ben's program. It's our program. And and it, it's getting that buy-in to those expectations that I think become really, really important. Yeah, there's so much there. Like you said, we could, we could probably do a whole semester on just that last answer and all the leadership lessons that come out of it. I know even just talking about the Notre Dame job when you went there. And that's, that's so important for a lot of people who follow, whether it's following a founder or following someone who's very successful to have that. How do you continue the vision and put your stamp on it and have it not be just a vision that isn't yours because yeah. you're the leader. So yeah. you need to put that on at some level. I know that's what it was like when I took over a nonprofit. I once shared the vision and someone looked at me and a friend of mine who does leadership development stuff. And he says, that sounds like someone else's vision. Yeah. You know, you really need to take, take a minute. That's such a huge lesson that how do you know that until you do it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and as you said, founding, that's a whole different set coming into a, a rebuild. That's a whole different set. And 
So you can't just say, well, I'm a leader. I'm going to do this the exact same way I've always done it because that doesn't work. Yeah. Right. When you go into the Nigeria situation, that's a whole different situation from everything else you've done. And I love that. And that's so critical, as you said, though, to still have those core values. That is who you are, as you talked earlier about being a man of faith, being having that drive who you are and what you do and how that comes in. All that comes in that you say, we're going to bring this to it, but it's nuanced. You can't just say, this is the silver bullet that works everywhere. I love that. Love that. All that that you just talked about there. So there's another little thing I want to just say. I'm a, I'm a Manchester United guy. And you said on your podcast or on your podcast, this is a podcast. You said on the website of Pitt that, you know, if there's one, one of the people there's a couple other people on there too. One of the people you'd love to have dinner with is Sir Alex Ferguson. So I'd be curious that I would too. That would be great. That would be an incredible dinner. But what would be one of the first things you'd want to ask him? And, and why, why that question? Why those questions? Yeah. First of all, I'd probably be so starstruck. I, I couldn't even speak. And I got the chance <laughs> to sit down with him. When I was at Notre Dame, Bobby Clark was our men's coach. And Bobby Clark is uh, Scottish, like Sir Alex. And Bobby played for Sir Alex. When uh, Alex was at Aberdeen. So Bobby knew him well. And we always would do a high school or a club and high school spring clinic for coaches to come in and we'd bring in guest clinicians. So for years, we were trying to get Sir Alex to come in. Of course, he's in the middle of the United season in the spring. So he could never come. Of course, the year I left Notre Dame, he had just retired and he came to Notre Dame. So I will say Bobby at least got him to autograph a book to me, you know, to Randy. Nice. And they, they, he did send it to me. So I, I at least appreciated that, that standpoint, but, uh, a huge fan of his. And I think I'm, there'd probably be two things I'd really want to talk to him about. One would be man management, you know, how, how he deals with the professionals in the locker room, because in the pros, it's different than the college game. And I found that out when I was in Houston and I would, I'd be very curious about his beliefs on just managing. You know, how, how, because, you know, as coaches of our programs, whether it be college or pro or club or high school or whatever, we're really the CEO of our organization. Right. And that's kind of the way I view it. And uh, I'd love to hear his thoughts on management. I've read many things. I know he's come to Harvard and given speeches and things on management, but I'd like to just really sit down and pick his brain about that. And then the second thing I I think I'd want to, I'd want to get into is, some X's and O's, you know, a little bit with him, like, you know, some, some ideas and what do you think about this versus playing this way play, versus playing that way, you know? And I think I could sit with him all day to just, to, to just talk shop and X's and O's, but yeah, we, we, you've been a United fan too. We, we, it's kind of like being a Cowboy fan. We've had some down years to, to go off of here for, for a while now. So we, we need to get things changed, changed around quickly. <laughs> Yeah, you talk about man management. It sounds like we need some of that right now. As we're that's recording this, we're just coming off of Rashford hanging out in Belfast and that's right. being on the not yeah. even on the in the team for Newport County, which was that's more right. interesting than it should have been. But that's a that's a whole different conversation for a different yeah. day. Yeah. But it is it is relevant to the leadership yeah. conversation, and it is relevant because yeah. that if you can't get your player and then and that locker room, that United locker room with the press with the all the stuff that goes with that is I, in a day that has social media that, you know, is, is just crazy. It's I, that, that man management is so important. And, and that, that you, you talked earlier about being a learner and a lifelong learner. And, and I love that, but can we just talk a little bit about the importance of the, that learning? I mean, even as you're talking about that X's and O's and, and 
you know, man management from a guy who obviously has done that for years and years and years in different situations and obviously done it well with the success you've had, but not just learning from people in our discipline, but learning from people outside our discipline. That's something we've talked about on this show. And what, what, can you just speak of the importance of that? Yeah. Well, I, I think, Sir Alex, that's one of the reasons I would like to ask him that question because he's one of those hard-nosed, old-school kind of guys. And I'm, I would be curious to hear how he changed his ways over the years, you know, as, as the game changed, as we all had, you know, those days of the Vince Lombardi type coach, you know, it, it doesn't work with the modern athlete today. But I've, I've been influenced. I love reading books from other coaches or other business people that I, that I can always think I can pick up one little nugget here or there, you know, like Mike Krzyzewski has the book called The Gold Standard that talks about his tenure with the Olympic team. And I love reading that and trying to pick up a few nuggets of how could that translate to my team? Um, you know, Tony Dungy, uh, you know, the, the, the list goes on. Bill Parcells, I've read his book. So I, I read a lot of other coaches that aren't in our sport. I used to go watch Tubby Smith when he was a coach at Tulsa before he went and won a national championship at Kentucky. I used to watch his practices because I do think there's a lot of correlation with some of the movements in basketball, you know, to, to our sport. So I'm always trying to do that. There, there, there's a great book out there called Good to Great by Jim Collins. It's just a, more of a business book, but talks about kind of getting the players all, getting all the players on the bus is important, but getting them in the right seat is also more important, right? That, that kind of thing. So I'm always just trying to find ways that, that I think I can pick something up that will make you a better man manager. So I love reading that. I think we've all changed and evolved. I mean, I can remember, it's almost probably embarrassing to say, but I can remember being at Notre Dame and little things like when people first started wearing white cleats or cleats that were colored, I was like, no way. Like we're, we're wearing black cleats. Like you're not wearing that here. You know, like you can just put that up. Tattoos. I remember my first player at Notre Dame that got a tattoo on her arm down at the lower part of her arm. I made her wear a sleeve on the arm to cover up the tattoo because I was afraid back then the image was, it was different. You know, it was a, it was a different time. Facebook had just come out. And I think if, if memory serves me right, I think Northwestern or Duke or somebody, one of their soccer teams had just got suspended for a whole semester where they, they could, couldn't do anything because there were some issues, pictures and things floating around Facebook. So I can remember the first few years I was at Notre Dame, we didn't allow anybody on Facebook. Now, I think they had their own private accounts that I never knew about, but, you know, like just things like that. And of course, now you know how important social media is and branding. And, and now you learn then that's part of life. You have to kind of accept it, but now you've got to worry about teaching them how to use it the proper way. And being careful of what they put on it. But, you know, I've gone from like, no, we're not doing those things to, okay, I've got to change a little bit. I, I can't, I can't continue to coach that way. So those are some things even off the field that, you know, we, we grow with the times and we change with the times. I think on the field, the game has clearly changed because the game now, whether you do it at the international level or you do it at the collegiate level or the professional level, it's, it's, such a game of transitions now you know it's it's you have to know how to possess and when to possess but then you also have to know how to go quick and you know you know you have to know how to to counter and then there's so much pressing that's being done now like it's you wouldn't survive if we taught the game the way we did 10 years ago you know in the modern game today i 
I was just watching games this weekend, and I think I tweeted something out about it, but I'm, I'm watching Liverpool play in the FA Cup this weekend against Norwich. Norwich. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I'm going, why does Norwich continue to try to play out of the back when Liverpool is so <laughs> good at pressing? And, yeah. you know, they they gave up the first couple of goals is, is off of yep. a mistake. Yep. And then, you know, I think I saw Man City play Tottenham earlier in the week, and it was the same thing. Tottenham continued to try to play out of the back, and it's late in the game, like four minutes left. Yep. And they're trying to play pretty soccer, building out of a goal kick, and Man City wins it. Gets a corner, scores a game-winning goal, you know, with about two minutes left, all off of that. And it's like sometimes, you know, like shouldn't we be a little bit more pragmatic? So all of these things now come into play, whereas years ago it was like, no, I'm just lumping the goal kick forward and we play from there. You know, teams weren't trying to build out. Teams weren't pressing. There weren't organized pressing triggers like there are now. The, The transition game and the athleticism of the teams now, that's one of the things that really... I know it's one thing to see the Women's World Cup on television, but to go down and see it at the field level, the speed of the game, the strength of these players, just watching Australia and England warm up before the game and just seeing their players strike 40-yard balls across the field to a teammate, it's on a, it's on a rope and it's a laser and it's just like, just the ball striking alone is such a different level even than the collegiate level. It's just it's amazing athletically. So I can only imagine in the men's game, you know, how, how dear I'm, I'm glad I played in an era I played because I don't know if I could play in the modern game. Now he'd been a small guy that's, you know, not athletic enough, you know, and I was a pretty good player in my day, but I look at these kids now and the way the game's evolved, it's, it's a completely different game. For sure. For sure. Well, we're just going to transition into a few of the questions that we, we love asking our guests to hear about just kind of your personal, you know, playing days and what you yep. learned back, back in the day, as you just yep. talked about back when you played, what was a defining moment in your soccer career as a player? And uh, why was it so impactful? What life and leadership lessons did you learn from it? You know, I think the biggest thing for me that changed me as a player was when I was young in youth soccer, and, and again, understand we didn't have soccer in the city I grew up in until I was 12 years old. So I didn't start playing until I was 12. And back then, the first couple of years, there wasn't enough kids to have age group teams. So 12-year-olds were playing with 17-year-olds. I mean, it was all lumped in. We had, we had enough for about eight or 10 teams, I think. And we were all lumped together. But back in those days, I was always late in maturing. So I was never as athletic or as fast or as strong as the players I played again, scrolling up. And I think the thing that really changed my course was playing for uh, Simon Sanchez, who was my high school coach at the time, and also our club coach, because we all, you know, the high school team just played for the, for the club team. You know, it was back then you played for your city. You didn't go play for club, like you, you mentioned solar earlier. You know, there was no sol- solars around. You, you played for the city that you lived in. And he was a former pro player out of Mexico, and he just really gave me the passion for the game and the drive to get better and the confidence. And I think that's such a big thing as coaches is developing players. It's not always about the talent piece of it, right, and the skills piece. I mean, that's a huge piece of it. But getting that player's mentality and the confidence and their self-belief is so important. And he, it really turned for me when I started to play for him in high school because up until that point, my freshman year, I was on a JV. All my friends were on the varsity. 
And then he just spent time working with me, you know, that year. And that next year, I ended up on varsity, ended up becoming the captain of the team. And I just blossomed, you know, and went on and, and got a college scholarship and, uh, you know, and, and had some success as a player at that point. But I think the defining moment for me was, was having him in my life. You know, I don't think there's a one game thing that really changed or defined me. I think it was uh, having somebody like that, that, that really believed in me and, and I really fed off of that. So that, that, that would probably be it for me. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and folks out there, if that doesn't inspire you to be a coach, I don't know what will that to see how we as coaches, it may not even be that a player goes on to you know, be the best player in the world, but that they go on to do other things to impact other people. So it's that multiplicative approach that we, we as coaches can coach others that will then coach others that will then go out and to be able to impact lives. And so your impact as a coach is not just in the here and now it's in years and years to come. And so hopefully you as a coach are thinking about that legacy well beyond this season, because this season may be disappointing. But yeah. think about the impact you're able to have on the, the young girls, young boys, young men, young women, um, that you're able to do that because they're all going to be going on and doing other things well beyond that team. So love that. Yeah. Randy, you've been, you know, you've been part of the game for a long time. You've coached at literally every level, especially on the, on the women's side. Give us kind of a glimpse into what you think as a, as a country we're doing, we're doing well. And maybe some things you think we need to continue to work on as a country within the game of soccer. Yeah, and I tell you, Paul, that's a really broad question. I, I do. It think, is, but what hit, what hits what hits you yeah. the hardest? You know, you know what I, I think. I think what we've done well is this. I do think we have a lot of talent in this country, and contrary to what a lot of people think, you know, when they see the World Cup and they see Spain play and the way they play, which I think we would all agree is 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 amazing. There's this perception that. Everybody has caught us and passed us up. And I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think we really, really have some talented players. I do think there's a lot of good club coaches and high school coaches out there that are working with players and developing our players. Now, I think there's a lot of bad ones out there as well. A country that's so big, you're going to get a little bit of both. But I do think what we've done that I've seen since even my years at, at, at Baylor the game has changed so much for the women, right? I mean, we have more better players. So I think we are producing a better pool of players than we've ever done before. I think to me, the problem is, is it is so big that I don't know how we, we change it, but I think our, our system of paying to play in the long run has really hurt us. And I know initially it was a way for coaches to, make a living and rightfully so because they're, they're professionals. They put the time in coaching education and so forth. So they should be getting paid for their time. But I think now it has snowballed so much. I think we all know that coaches around clubs around the country are coaching too many teams. There's not enough field space for players to get on the field. I was down at FC Dallas a, a year or two ago and went out one night to watch those kids train. And there's, five or six teams on one field. You got a quarter of a field to work. And so how, how can you do anything really in that kind of a space? And, you know, club coaches that are taking on two or three teams and are more, there's just a lot of things that we're doing wrong. The pay for play model inherently and in, in it's, in it's the way it's constructed 
is not a good way to do it because the, the parents are now the consumer, right? So they, they always, in any other walk of life, would have a, a voice, and they do now. You know, when they're not happy with, you know, the product, then they're going to go to the coach or to the manager of McDonald's if they're not happy with what they ordered or, you know, so they are the consumer. And I think we lose sight of that with the clubs that they are, you know, so we have to find a way to, to manage that a little better. So I don't know how we roll that back, you know, I mean, short of sponsors coming in and and starting to develop academies that are true academies, like more so like they are in Europe. And, And I don't think that'll ever happen here with our numbers. I don't know how we change that. I think it's too easy for players and parents now to not be happy and to uproot and just jump from team to team instead of really, really find a coach that can maximize that player's development and not worry so much about wins and losses. Uh, I think that's that's a big issue. I, I think our our method of selecting our best players is probably not the most efficient now. I know now we've got scouts, you know, that are U.S. soccer scouts that are out watching, you know, all of these ECNL and GA events and everything else. But I'm not sure the scouts themselves are well-versed in what it looks like at the international level, at the top level. I think a lot of the scouts, quite frankly, didn't have a lot of success with teams that they'd had before. Like, I just think there's a litany of issues there. You know, the old school way we used to do it with ODP and, and the, you know, regional camps and regional teams in hindsight might not have been such a bad model after all, you know, where you're bringing the best players from every state in and, and getting a week to see them train and play and, 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 and then keeping those players over. I, I'm not advocating that we go back to that, but I, I, I'm not so sure that wasn't a better method than, than what we have now. The country's just so big and, you know, does a scout really know what our U20 coach wants or what our U17 coach wants and the way they want to play? And, you know, what's what does our umbrella look like? You know, hopefully Emma will change some of this. And, and I think she's a good choice. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm behind her hoping that she does. But it should look, you know, it should be some vertical integration. You know, the young players should be playing the way the, the, the senior team's playing and there should be some some similarities in the game model, but, you know, between those teams. And that's one thing I think Spain has done a really good job of is, is I think their countries years, years ago was divided into these four regions. And so they, in essence, have four national teams for every age group. So those national teams went out and played around the world. And then when they got ready for a major event, they would bring those national teams together and select, you know, their, their full team from it, but they were all playing in the same style in the same system and you see that now whether you watch a barcelona play or you watch their national team play it's it's all very conducive to being uh, similar to their to their style and i don't know that as a country we really have our style i think we have some qualities our players and you know what our makeup is that we can win off of our aggression and our athleticism competitiveness but we we're going to have to put some things in place to to uh, improve the brand that we're playing. So I, I just see it really at the youth level. I, I see that's where our, our biggest is, issues lie. And I don't know that the senior team will really change if we don't get something done at the bottom. Yeah. I'd agree with yeah. that, Ray. It's funny. It's the second, probably the second time in the last two or three weeks that the, the conversation about the old ODP 
uh, yeah. has come up and how we how it used to be done. And, and even then, we were yeah you know, we were missing players, and they were, sure. they were it wasn't a perfect system either. But well, looking back on that, there were some things about it that you yeah. even just described that were yeah. somewhat beneficial to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's yeah, a big and, country. And, That's always going to be a problem. Yeah. Such a large country. But I do think, listen, you, you, you know, they, they brought in a few of these young players like a Jaden Shaw, you know, out of Dallas. That's mm -hmm. and yeah. I think there's a lot of Jaden Shaws out there. I do think we yeah. have talent. It's just harnessing that talent, finding a game model that fits the way we want to play and really kind of having a vision again. Like we, I, I think we should be looking, we're, on the women's side at least, we're, still going to remain one of the top teams in the world for the foreseeable future. But I don't think we need to do it World Cup to World Cup. I think we, we probably should be planning out 10 more years, you know, and going, what can we do to affect these 8, 9, 10-year-olds that are coming up now so that in 10 years we, we are playing some of the best football in the world. And have others caught us? I think it's just that others have invested, you know, whereas – you know, Spain and France and Germany and those those teams weren't investing as much as the U.S. in the early years. And and now they've made an investment. So they're reaping the rewards of that. And, and we've got to do the same. Um, so I, I do think it's a hard look. And I think you're almost going to have to. Some people are going to have to make some hard decisions. And I just don't know if we have the people in place at U.S. soccer that will make those decisions. I hope so. Yeah, so do I. And, uh, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what you guys are, are saying, obviously. And, and I, I, I think, too, you talk about the early years. How do we keep the kids in the game, especially the kids who don't have the money to be able to do the pay-to-play? Because even if they're good mm -hmm. enough to do the ECNL route, you know, I speak my personal situation. That yeah. was never an option because I run a ministry and I don't yeah. have the funds to be able to do that. So, fortunately, there's been some clubs who have scholarship my kids, but they're not at that, you know. And even if the ECNL, because the travel on top right. of the fees and all this other stuff, it's just, it's, and even if you don't want, even it's not a money thing. It could be that you want to play other sports. It could be that, you know, which is a good thing from the, you know, lack of specialization, you know, that generalization side of things. So there's so many parts of the argument, but, or the conversation, but also the fact that, as you talked about the, the scouting, even if the scouts do know what they want and do know, then you have the issue of, are they just going to ECNL events? Are they just going to GA events? Because yeah. there's a lot of other diamonds in the rough that are going to be out there that we're going to miss. Yeah. And at the, like you said, the size of the country, you can't see everybody. You can't possibly do that. But, you know, are there better ways? You know, probably. But, you know, we all got to, who's going to agree on those? Who's going to be able to figure that out? And you're always going to miss people. So I guess they just yeah. say, well, let's just keep doing what we're doing because we're doing good enough. Yeah. As we say, though, often good is often the enemy of great. And I think that you see that sometimes, but, but hopefully we will start making some changes and it will, it will get, get to be the best it can be. All right. There are two last questions that we have for all of our guests, and then we will wrap it up. But how have you used the lessons um, you've learned directly from the game of soccer in your marriage and in your parenting? You know, I, that's a great question. I, I, I think it's, just trying to keep a balance and do and do the right things you know if you're if you're always and i i use the word preaching lightly but if you're always with your team in a team setting and, and you're trying to set the right examples for your players you know in front of them 
then you got to be willing to bring those examples home and do the right things there at home too. You know, uh, it sounds like you guys have done a little bit of this with your kids and coaching as well, but you know, Ben grew up playing for me as well. And that's always hard when you have a parent that's a coach and then their child play for them because they're, you know, they're always going to get, you know, those that say well, they're playing because they're hit the coach's son or the coach's daughter or whatever. And, so I think you just have to take some of those those lessons that you've learned in life and in coaching and make sure that you equate those to your family, you know, your 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 marriage, your your kids. Because I do think sport teaches a lot of great life, you know, life lessons. Yeah. You, you have to learn to communicate. You have to learn to listen, you know, you, you have to learn to to be present and and to take advantage of the time that you have just like you do when you're with your teams, you know, if you're not a good communicator, then I think you're going to have a really difficult time being a good coach. And it's the same way at home. You know, you, you, you can't turn that switch off when you go home. So I think it's all about, to me, the biggest thing is just do the right thing, you know, just live the life the right way. And I was really lucky that I grew up in a family that, you know, of course I grew up at a different time. So my dad was a really, really strict disciplinarian. I got the belt a few times, you know, back in the day, but I always knew, you know, right and wrong. There wasn't a gray area. There wasn't, you know, it, it's, it's pretty black and white. And that's the way I've always tried to do it at my house as well. Not the belt part, but the, uh, <laughs> uh, but the black and white part. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll get, with, we'll get with Ben on that. And that's right. Yeah, yeah. Behind that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, I laugh. My, my kids are, are, are young to where like, a few of my young ones aren't even sure that I even know anything about soccer or their mom for that. Yeah. Fact. So it's kind of yeah. like, okay, yeah, just go listen to your recreational coach who played basketball in high school. They've got That's you right. under control, bro. So Randy, last, last, cause you've already, you've already talked about being a reader, how you like to you know, read other coaches, which I think is a fantastic, some fantastic advice that I learned a lot from other, other coaches and other sports and disciplines, but what, it, what, are, give us some other things that you've maybe watched, read, or listened to that have, have really impacted how, soccer explains leadership well i i i do try to um read a lot and i think there's several you know good good people out there that are doing things on leadership i think the even watching the ted talk stuff is there's some of those that i think are very very good i i think there's some that better than others as is as the case for anything but i i do think that you've kind of got to it's it's a piece of your coaching. It's almost like there's a tactical piece we have to teach. There's a technical piece, you know, there's a physical and a psychological piece, but I do think there's a leadership piece in there. And I do think you've got to look outside of the soccer norms to find ways to help you grow as becoming a better leader. And that's why I think books, you know, from, you know, guys like Abrams and, you know, the Ted talks and those kind of things, I think are always, you can always pick up something good. Jeff Jansen's got some good stuff out there. I mean, you can you can pick up bits and pieces from from a lot of different people. We we here at Pitt have brought the TED Talk people in for our coaches, and they've come in and done a few sessions. And some of the work that they've done with our coaches, I think, has been outstanding. You know, Becky's come in, and I, I think my only thing I would say with the leadership piece of it is it's like anything else. Find the right balance, you know, to where all of your time's not spent on building and developing leadership and worrying about that. You know, like you still have to come in and train, 
You know, you still have to come <laughs> over and do the soccer piece. You know, there's still, yep. I do think sometimes you can get so caught up into one area. Like all I'm really going to worry about is the tactics. Well, then I need to make sure I spend more time in the leadership part, more time in the technical side of things or whatever. And I think it's the same for leadership. I think we can get caught up. I, I found that uh, to be something I learned a little bit when I went to the dash because we started really getting into the sports science because the league was really diving into the sports science piece. And I can remember going to a clinic that David Moyes held in San Antonio and going to that clinic and talking to him about it. And he said the same thing. He said, look, now he's a little bit more old school than I am, but he, one of the things he said is we do take the technology for sports science and we do have to look at it in our periodization and all that. He said, but at some point in time, there's a, someday you just got to get on the line and do some work. There's sometimes you've just got to look at your team and say, maybe the sports science is telling me not to do this, but I need it from the mental side of it where they got to learn to grind through some hard work. And I think that's the same thing I would say, sports science, whether it's that, whether it's leadership or whatever. I do think it's a part that we have to utilize and grow and add that to our layers of tools that we have as a coach. But I don't think it can be the be all and the end all. You know, I think it's just one of the layers that we, we need to continue to, to, to put in place. Yeah, you know, and I, I think there's it's a there's so much to it. It's nuanced as we talk about. It's not there's not one one right answer to all of that. You got to you got to put it in the mix and figure out what is the best for for these players at this time. Yeah. And that's something that you know, we can we can Monday morning, Monday morning quarterback a lot of things here. But I love love all that you talked about. Thank you so much for all you're doing. Thank you for being faithful to your call and being faithful to what you believe God has put you on this earth to do. Appreciate that. I'm very uh, grateful for you coming on, taking the time to be with us on the show. Well, thank you guys for having me. I really enjoyed it. That, that time flew by, so I appreciate it very much. You made it easy. Yeah, well, Always glad. great, Randy. Thanks, thanks so much. Appreciate right. it. Thank you, guys. Well, folks, thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for engaging. Thank you for listening. And if you want to see any of the things that we've talked about on the show, you can check all those out at the show notes. You can check out Warrior Way. Paul is sporting the, uh, I don't know if it's a hoodie or a jacket. It's a Warrior mm -hmm. Way hoodie right there. You can see what that's all about. You can go check that out at the show notes. Um, coaching the Bigger Game, the disc stuff that we do, you can check that out at the show notes as well. As always, folks, we hope that what you're taking from this show, you are using it to help you be a better parent, a better spouse, a better player, better coach, a better leader, better in all that you do. And you continue to remind yourself that soccer does explain life and leadership. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple weeks.